As Sam said, we are starting back into our summer series as we've been studying through the Pentateuch for the last, what, six years or so? We've made it to page, what did he say, 60? Really blazing along there. We come back to the book of Exodus and we have been studying these books in the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. Don't worry, we will get back to 2 Thessalonians when we start the fall season. We'll finish out that last chapter and then transition into a new book. Uh, and we're, Lord willing, going to be looking to study the book of Revelation in the late fall and taking however much time it takes us to get through that book together. But this morning we, we come back to these initial five books of the Old Testament in the Pentateuch. In essence, the Pentateuch, the first five books, they introduce us to God. Genesis shows us that God is sovereign. Everything is run by his providence. Exodus shows God to be a savior. Leviticus explains that God is holy. Numbers reveals that God is faithful. And the book of Deuteronomy shows us that God is a ruler. Now we've spent a number of summers walking through the entirety of Genesis, marveling at the sovereign providential blessing of God. Now we come to Exodus that shows us that God is the savior of his people. It's a powerful display, defining who God is as savior and how we actually relate to God as a savior. In fact, the book divides just that way. It answers these two questions. Who is God? That's the first 18 chapters. And how do we relate to him? That's chapters 19 through 40. Now last summer we began our study of Exodus and seeing who God is and God being our savior is seen in him being our redeemer, our deliverer. That's the first 12 chapters of this first section. He is a deliverer, chapters one to 12. In fact, those words redemption or deliverance are rehearsed more than seven times in these chapters giving us that idea. He is our deliverer. He is also our provider, and we'll look at that in chapters 13 to 18, and Lord willing, that's what we'll look at next summer. We're going to spend the rest of our time really diving into how God is our deliverer, our redeemer. Last summer, we looked at the first four chapters of the book, How Is God This Saving Deliverer? Chapter 1 looked at Israel in Egypt after Joseph's death, telling us that God is the one who is perpetually present with his people, whether it's in prosperity, whether it's in their pain, or even in the way that he provides, God is constantly, he's perpetually with his people. He never leaves his people. Even when it feels as if God is absent, he has never left his people. In chapters two to four, we considered Moses' background and his calling into service, seeing that God is the one who is purposefully preparing his people to serve him and we see that in his providentially preparing his people to serve him whether it's in their background as we saw in chapter two how we encounter and interact with God chapter three how we how he demonstrates his sufficiency for us chapter four God is the one always preparing us to serve him Now we come to chapters 5 through 12. These chapters also show that God is a redeemer. He is our deliverer. And how does it show us that? 
Well, these are the chapters where God actually brings about deliverance. How's he going to do that? We see God powerfully delivering his people through the plagues that he enacts on Egypt. All of which are actually answering a question that Pharaoh asks in our passage today. Who is Yahweh? Who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice? The plagues will answer the question. And you have likely noticed in your own experience, God's provision, God's deliverance doesn't always play out in the kind of timing that we expect, certainly not the kind of timing that we always want. A lot of times it's not the kind of timing we even desire. In fact, God's deliverance often appears slow. You ever felt that about God? This is too slow. This is too painful. This is too discouraging. This is too difficult. If you're a deliverer, you should show us that sooner than you are. We've recently been talking about eschatology as we've been studying through 2 Thessalonians. We've been talking about the coming of the Lord. And we often find ourselves groaning within, asking, how long? How long, O Lord? We want that final redemption to come. We see what happens in our world. We see the difficulties of life itself. We feel the press of sin on our own life and we are constantly saying, Lord, when is it going to be that you're just going to make everything new and come and show yourself the deliverer we know you to be? We feel it personally. We feel it immediately. Whether we're longing for a family member to be saved, a difficult situation we find ourselves in to be resolved, a crisis to finally end and we find ourselves perhaps bewildered with the seeming lack of involvement by God to come to our deliverance and aid. And sometimes that's exactly how we see it. God, you don't seem to be involved in this. Or if you're involved, this doesn't look like deliverance. It's getting harsher, more difficult, more weighty. God's delay in deliverance is the theme of chapter 5. And friends, we know this to be true. We don't feel it when we're walking through it, but we all know when we take a step back in the easier times of life, we understand God's delay is always purposeful, isn't it? His delay is always purposeful. And while bewildering in the moment, we know that the end will be good. God's delay in deliverance exposes things in us. It exposes our own hearts. It exposes unbelief in us. Think about how God's delay in deliverance even exposes the unbelief of our world. When God comes back in judgment, as we've been studying in 2 Thessalonians, no one's going to be able to sit around and say, I just don't understand how this is just. There's going to be enough sin and opposition to God that when he returns, his justice will look pristine. 
and right. What kind of responses are exposed when God delays his deliverance? That's what we want to ask. I want us to consider the movements through this chapter that expose various responses when God delays our deliverance. What are the kind of responses to God that get put out in the open when he doesn't seem to work in the timing that we think in our mind and in our experience and our circumstances that we think would be best or most helpful? Let's think through these responses together. We'll just watch them through the movements of this chapter. The first one we find in the very first verse in Exodus chapter 5. And what is that first response? I refer to it as comfortable obedience. Comfortable obedience. When we come into Exodus 5, it's right on the heels of the events just prior to it in the last part of Exodus 4 where Moses had been offering up all kinds of reasons why he was unfit and why it would not work for him to be God's mouthpiece to Israel or to Pharaoh. And you remember in chapter 4, every response from God was a reminder of God's own sufficiency for Moses. Moses gives up a response God says, no, I'll meet that. I'm sufficient for that. God's power is sufficient. He always provides, even through supernatural abilities. He gave Moses all of these miracles he could show to Israel and to Pharaoh. God's presence is sufficient. He even said, I will be with your mouth. God's provision is sufficient. God provides the right people. He provides the right confirmation and timing and information and preparation. He, he provides the right kind of companionship that you need. Even the right results. All of that was chapter four. It left us feeling like Moses is ready. Moses is ready to tackle this what seems to be an impossible situation to go into the most powerful man in the known world and say to him, you release all of these people, two million people, who were the workforce, the labor force for Pharaoh. He was ready. That's why it says in verse one, and afterward. After all of that preparation, all of that preparation and assurance, Moses and Aaron boldly approached Pharaoh. Moses and Aaron came and said to Pharaoh. Now stop right there for just a moment. This is not a small event. Don't miss how significant it is that Moses and Aaron walk into the throne room of Pharaoh, the most powerful man on the planet at the time. I don't think we need to minimize that. Even Joseph, who was second in command, if you go back and read how he interacted with Pharaoh many times, sometimes there was direct address, but many times he's having to go through Pharaoh's own emissaries and officers for him to relay one piece of information to Pharaoh. He didn't just walk into Pharaoh's throne room. But Moses and Aaron gained direct access. And we're not told how, we're not told why. Maybe it was due to Moses' past position as an adopted son of a Pharaoh, Maybe the curiosity was aroused in Pharaoh. What do these men want? We're not told. 
One commentator noted that, quote, being in the presence of Pharaoh was a daunting experience and it was not uncommon for persons to be on their stomachs in respect in his presence, unquote. Can you imagine that? I mean, we have, we have Charlton Heston in mind when we see this, don't we? And he's walking into the throne room with the voice of Charlton Heston. It could be that they crawled in. It could be that they were laying on their faces when they said to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, let my people go. How intimidating would that be to Pharaoh? But do notice what they said. Thus says the Lord. That is an oft-repeated phrase throughout the Bible, isn't it? The prophets say it all the time. Thus says the Lord. In other words, anything that I say from this point forward, they're not my words. This is Yahweh speaking. Yahweh who created the heavens and the earth is telling you something. He is demanding of you something. Thus says the Lord. This is the first time in all of the scripture that that popular phrase is actually used. Wouldn't it be fascinating to think of Moses on his face demanding that Pharaoh listen to the voice of Yahweh? Not only is he to listen to Yahweh, notice, thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel. The God of Israel. Yahweh, the, the word Yahweh, the all capital letters that you have in your Bible, Lord, it's the divine name for God. It's his personal name. It comes from the Hebrew verb to be, reminding us that God is. He always has been. He always will be. There's no beginning. There's no end. He's over all things. He's Yahweh. That's why it's his personal name. And Yahweh is the God of Israel. Israel belongs to this God. This is a statement that he's making to Pharaoh. God of the universe says, Yahweh says, these are my people, Pharaoh, they're not your people. They're not yours. Therefore, let my people go. Release them. Think about that. As they crawl in and are bowed before Pharaoh, they look perhaps up at him and say, thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, let them go. So much for subtlety. There's no acknowledgement of who Pharaoh is in his position. There's no look to Pharaoh to say, now I realize that you are the most powerful man on the planet. I get all of that. No subtlety, no winsomeness, no respect or acknowledgement. Yahweh says to you, I'm the God of Israel, release my people, period. Now, the reality is the rest of the chapter actually unfolds this issue. Let my people go. Pharaoh will respond in verse two. His response is, I will not let these people go. In verse three, Moses says, let us then go three days in the wilderness. Pharaoh responds in verse seven, no, 
I'll let them go gather their own straw to make the same amount of bricks. Verse 8, he mocks their wanting to go and worship their God. Verse 17, he tells them their desire to go is laziness. In verse 18, he says, you want to go? Go work. Verse 22, instead of Israel going, Moses goes back to Yahweh. What begins in a very powerful, straightforward, let my people go, ends with Moses going back without the people. Some commentators suggest that Moses is arrogant, that he's too brash, that he's actually hindering his cause. He's not saying precisely the the more calm and kinder, pleasant words that were described to him in chapter 3, verse 18, making an appeal I mean, in in chapter 3, verse 18, Moses is told, you're going to go and you're going to ask for a long holiday weekend, three days out in the wilderness. That's not what he asked for here. He asked for categorical release. Just release the people of God. Let them go. And so some think he's, he's overreacting. And maybe he's too bold after seeing the miracles. He's too bold after all the preparation of chapter 4. And he's a little overconfident. And he ruins his welcome. I don't think Moses is trying to be disrespectful here. I think he's simply appropriately bold. He's been assured in chapter 4. I mean, after all, if you, if you, can, take a, you can take a stick and make it into a serpent, how could this fail? This can't fail. Let my people go. This should be a piece of cake, right? I'm going to walk in. I'm going to tell Pharaoh, God says this, and he's going to say, I think you're right. I get it. But don't mistake what Moses is asking for. He's not asking for a long weekend. He's asking for complete liberation. Let them be released. He even goes on to say, so they may celebrate a feast to me in the wilderness. What does that mean? Well, this phrase, a feast and to celebrate is used 12 times in the Old Testament. It's always a celebration of devotion to Yahweh. This would not have been unheard of in Egyptian culture. One scholar, Dwayne Garrett, has noted, ancient Egypt had an enormous number of religious festivals that served as a major public holiday. Each of the three Egyptian seasons had a whole series of associated holy days. Many of the gods had special days and associated rituals. Some were large public spectacles in which the god, that is, the image, would be brought out of a temple and taken on a procession. Sometimes it would be placed on a special boat and sailed up the Nile to be adored by throngs of ordinary people. The Egyptians understood the importance of allowing people to get off from work, attend sacrifices and festivities, and perform their religious duties. The holy days of Egyptian gods might be observed with solemnity or with raucous celebration, but they would never be ignored. So it would not be uncommon for someone to come in and say it would be appropriate for us to go worship a particular god and have some time to do that. Why is Pharaoh so insistent that he will not even entertain this one? Because he understands what Moses is asking for. Moses just walked in and said, there's a God, I know you don't know his name. You've never heard of him. He's the God of this enslaved people who do all of your work. And he says, 
you should release them completely so that they will go worship him out in the wilderness. Apart from Egypt, apart from you, in defiance of you, Pharaoh, and Pharaoh thought that he himself was a god. A feast of celebration, not to an Egyptian god, but a foreign god of an enslaved people. If he were to give way to this, he would be saying, well, the God of Israel of these slaves is a greater God than I am. Now, I have referred to this bold assertion in verse 1 as comfortable obedience. Why? Because once he hears the answer, Absolutely not. Where does Moses go? Well, he goes in verse 3 to nuance the request. Well, no, it's, it's now a request in verse 3 where it was a demand in verse 1. Did you notice? Could we please have three days off? And by the end of the chapter, Moses is leaving Pharaoh's presence and he's ready to quit. This is very bold in the beginning. But at the ending, Moses is done. And he's blaming God for this. Have you ever wondered how your bold obedience to the word of God gets nuanced and shallowed, changed? Because what you start off on Monday ready to do you find opposition and delay and hardship. And by Saturday, you're thinking, do I even want to go to church? Would I even show up again? Do I even want to follow this God? Is life really worth living? Sometimes we're immediately frustrated when our loyalty to God is not immediately acknowledged by God and reciprocated by what we believe is a deserved blessing from God. Lord, I've read all week in your word what you're going to do. Why aren't you doing it? Is our obedience bold only so long as it's comfortable to be bold? It appears that Yahweh is not just about to teach Pharaoh a lesson about who he is. He's about to teach Moses one also, isn't he? And Israel. While our calling certainly does involve us, you do understand that our calling to represent God is not fundamentally about us. It is about God. And our ease in life and our experience of setbacks and challenges does not mean that our obedience is somehow ineffective or that our obedience is not worth maintaining just because it is difficult and it doesn't necessarily yield all of the fruits that we thought that it should yield immediately. We all face this. We're going to face it tomorrow. We start the new day. You might face it as soon as you leave here and you hear about God's word and you see it and you're, you feel, yes, his word is true. We've been singing, we've been praying, we've been talking to each other, encouraging one another. We're ready to face it. And then it's not just that the hardship doesn't budge 
it gets worse. And we start questioning whether or not this is right. It's comfortable obedience. Have you ever noticed what delay in deliverance does? It draws out of us what's inside, doesn't it? Just pulls out of us how we really think about God and his word. And can I just say to you, that is a mercy from God that he would do that. So that you see, so this is where I really am. And this is how much I really need to depend on God. I need to trust his word. I need to trust his timing. I need to trust that even the hardships he has under control. Do I really believe that he is Yahweh, the God who is and has created all things and they all are under his sovereign hand? Did I forget the whole book of Genesis? That makes me now doubt the book of Exodus that he actually is a savior. You see what God exposes when he does not give immediate deliverance? One response is comfortable obedience. A second response is exposed when God delays deliverance. It's found in verses two through five. It's absolute rejection. Absolute rejection. It's what we see in verses two through five. Pharaoh is having none of this from old men on their stomachs in front of him making demands on behalf of a God he's never heard of and who rules supposedly over an enslaved people. Pharaoh is his own God. He is his own God in the eyes of the Egyptians and himself. And what would he be saying about his own divinity? What would he, what would he do to his reputation among the nation if he bowed to the single demand of an enslaved people and a God that no one has really ever heard of except these Israelites? Again, another commentator noted Pharaoh's request that we see here when he says, who is the Lord? Who is Yahweh? His request, when seen in the context of Egyptian polytheism, it is understandable. For there were many gods to which one might pay honor. The God of an enslaved people was not one of them. And although he probably assumed that these slaves did serve a God, he was not going to give any respect or honor to such a God. That would diminish himself, wouldn't it? Pharaoh's response leaves no doubt as to what he thinks of himself and himself in relationship to Yahweh. Pharaoh said, who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? That is a question that will ring in his ears until he dies. Who is Yahweh? In fact, all of the plagues answer that question. When God begins to release the plagues on Egypt, why does he do it? Five times he says in chapter 7 verse 5, 7, 17, the first two verses of chapter 10, chapter 14 verse 4, and verses 17 through 18 in chapter 14, he says, here's why I'm doing it so that you may know that I am Yahweh. He goes on in chapter 8, verse 10 to say, now you'll know that there is no one like Yahweh our God. In chapter 8, verse 22, he gives the plague so that you will know that I am Yahweh in the midst of the earth. 
In chapter 9, verse 14, it is so that you would know that there is none like me in all the earth, that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth, chapter 9, verse 16. That's why he gives the plagues. He gives the plagues in chapter 9, verse 29, so that you may know that the earth is Yahweh's. In chapter 11, verse 7, it says, so that you may know that Yahweh makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Pharaoh asked this opening question, who is Yahweh that I would listen to his voice? And God answers with all of the plagues so that you would know that I am Yahweh. Pharaoh is honest. I don't know Yahweh. I don't know him. And besides, I will not let Israel go. I don't know who this God is that you're talking about. Sure, I'm sure they have a God. Everybody's got a God. I don't care who this God is. I'm not letting these people go. Categorical rejection. So Moses and Aaron recalibrate their originally bold demand into a more pleasant request. You see it in verse 3. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Maybe, that, maybe he'll bend if he just knows, well, this God showed up and talked to us. The God of the Hebrews has met with us. And notice, please, there's no, thus says the Lord, please, please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to Yahweh our God. Otherwise, he will fall upon us with pestilence or with sword. He does not make a statement that Yahweh would fall on the Egyptians He makes a statement that Yahweh will fall on us. This would preserve us. It's not really about you, Pharaoh. This would save us. And after all, we're your labor force. You don't want to lose that. So please, it's just three days. Let us go into the wilderness. And we'll make a sacrifice to Yahweh. Do you know what that means? A sacrifice? A sacrifice? You're going to slay an animal in your place as if your life were on the line if you don't worship this God. So you're saying that your life is worth this God? What would I be saying if I allowed you to make sacrifices to that God? You're not acknowledging Pharaoh's deity. You're saying there's another God who's worth more than Pharaoh. This is what we find in verse three, what they were supposed to say. In verse 18 of chapter 3, God says, you're going to say this to him. And I've looked again, I haven't seen anything thus far that suggested that if Israel didn't go out, God would wipe them out. That God would come against them. Now it is fascinating that Moses did not completely fold. He and Aaron do reiterate their purpose for being there, but now he's just trying to be a little bit more persuasive perhaps. Maybe if Pharaoh knows that God, a deity, has actually visited us, that Pharaoh will think we have some kind of credibility behind us, and and yeah, well, maybe I could give you three days, and then I could appease this God. But Pharaoh doesn't buy that. If you want to know what Pharaoh thinks, you see it very clearly in verse 4. But the king of Egypt, notice the language, the ruler of Egypt, the king, the sovereign of Egypt said to them, 
Moses and Aaron, why do you draw the people away from their work? Get back to your labors. He looks at them and says, you just want to let, get rid of my most helpful workforce. This has nothing to do with worship. You just don't want to work. It's as if the very audience of Moses and Aaron with Pharaoh has caused the people of Israel to cease their work. Or at least their leaders because we find out the leaders, the lay leaders of Israel are standing just outside the throne room doors. They're waiting for them. So they're certainly not leading the people in the work. And Pharaoh knows this. It's a bit like asking your employer, I need some time off to go to a Christian conference. They're like, a what? You want to miss five days of work to go travel and listen to guys teach the Bible? Sounds to me like you're lazy. Sounds to me like you just don't want to work. You want vacation and you don't want to call it that. Or maybe there's some of you who've even tried this. You say, I just want Sundays off. Sundays off? You want us to give up another day of making money so you can go sit at church with your friends? Sounds pretty lazy to me. But this is often the response of paganism. Gods are, gods are not there to be followed. They're to be appeased. And that's how the pagans viewed gods in the ancient world. You, you didn't just follow them because of their authority. You gave them a little bit about, of what they wanted to appease them to get them off your back. You don't, you don't follow them to the detriment of real work. And I think that's how many people in the non-Christian world, they view religion. It's nothing more than just a waste of precious time. I mean, how many people, they can't fathom taking their Sunday and showing up. Really, this is an early time for most people on Sunday, isn't it? I mean, they're just getting around and the lawnmowers are just starting. This is either time to rest or I could get another day in. This is complete rejection by Pharaoh. No intention of even acknowledging this demand as any kind of legitimate issue. He, like so many in the non-Christian world, they, they would accommodate almost any other religion. Pharaoh might, if this was an Egyptian god, have said, you know, three days, we can accommodate that. But if it's the god of Yahweh, if it's Yahweh, no way. Have you noticed that? You can pray in the name of many other gods. You say Jesus and <laughs> we're done with that. But don't miss this. This rejection is not merely a reaction from Pharaoh. It's an exposure by God. God is actually exposing in public Pharaoh's outright rejection of God himself. Now we've read the, uh, the rest of the story. Judgment is coming, isn't it? It's coming. The voice of Pharaoh's emphatic statement, who is Yahweh that I should obey him, will be ringing in his ears. It will be the ringing refrain until the end of the plagues. It is going to be the evidence of the justice of God's response. He is drawing Pharaoh out in public so when the judgment comes, it is just. Which is why if you are here this morning and you are not a Christian, this is a helpful warning for you to give consideration. 
you need to be very careful about your statements of rejecting God. That total, outright, arrogant rejection of God in which you put him in a category that you really don't need him. He's a waste of your time. You've got better things to do. Why can't this be over? There are things to watch on TV, you know, really important things like that. I I need to go out and spend time doing whatever. Be careful. The more you say it, the more you are pouring evidence into the reservoir that fills up that when the dam breaks and judgment comes, it's simply the evidence of his justice when judgment breaks over you. He's drawing it out. He exposes outright rejection. So listen, when you see that in our world and you see it in family members who you sit down to talk with them about Christ and forgiveness and liberation and redemption and they look at you and they say I don't want you to say anything more about this to me I am done with this you ever faced that before it's not a personal rejection that you need to be worried about there do you understand God is drawing them out publicly to say here here's what you said There's a third response that we see here within God's delayed deliverance. It's found in verses 6 through 19. I call it murderous hatred. Murderous hatred. Because it's not enough for Pharaoh to simply reject God. It's as if he's got a chip on the shoulder and he now needs to demonstrate his, his divinity over the divinity of this supposed Yahweh God. So do you notice verse six, what's the first phrase there? So the same day, this is immediate response, immediate response to this challenge from Yahweh. He wants to demonstrate immediate unhindered authority over this God. It's as if he's thrown down the gauntlet. Bring it on Yahweh. I'll show you what I think of you and I'll show you my power and I'll take this little demand from Moses and I'll turn it on his head so that all of these people who just don't want to work will hate Moses so much and Yahweh so much they will go back to work. So on that day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters over the people and their foremen The taskmasters, that's a word that is also translated many times in the Old Testament as oppressors. Those who exact oppression and suffering. How about that for a job description? That's your title. You come to work, it's on the business card. What do you do? I'm an oppressor. I oppress people. It's like I enjoy it, really. I get a lot of satisfaction out of this. This is who they were. It's what they do. It's what they're known for. They exist to simply exact oppression over these people. Over the foreman, it says. Not just the people, but the foreman. It's a, it's a term that simply means official. It's, it's a lay leader. It's not Moses and Aaron who are working full-time for Yahweh. These are lay leaders. These are lay elders over, over the entire congregation of the people. They're recognized as leaders. They're the ones that Pharaoh has used to organizationally exact their rule. And these taskmasters, these oppressors, will work through these lay leaders to bring about Pharaoh's demands. 
So that same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters over the people and their foremen, saying, you are no longer to give the people straw to make brick as previously. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. Now, straw was essential to making bricks, and bricks were essential to building the buildings of Egypt, and building the buildings of Egypt was essential to the legacy and the glory of the Pharaoh. And it was strenuous activity. One scholar noted, looking at Egyptian, ancient Egyptian uh, models of this, he said the straw was not used for firing the brick, which was sun-dried. They didn't have kilns. They had bricks that were dried out in the sun. Straw was added to the mud and clay to act as a binding agent. It helped prevent shrinkage and cracking. Chaff or animal dung could also be used. And the first brick mold, essentially it was an open wooden frame like a box with neither top nor bottom but only the four sides. It appeared in Egypt around 3400 BC. The procedure was as follows. First, mud was broken up with a hoe and then the binding agent and water was mixed in. This was kneaded with the feet until it had the right consistency and then it was pressed into the brick mold. And bricks were then pushed out of the mold and arranged in rows in order to be dried by the sun. And since they were formed in molds, they had consistent size and they could be easily employed in construction. Phil Riken in his commentator says, the Egyptians and the, the slaves of the Egyptians primarily, they worked out in the hot Egyptian sun all day, often in temperatures over 100 degrees, driven to optimum production by their taskmasters. They had no hats to protect their heads and wore nothing but a brief kilt or apron on their bodies. A wealthy Egyptian father talked with his son about the condition of their bricklayers. He observed that their kidneys suffer because they are out in the sun with no clothes on. Their hands are torn to ribbons by the cruel work and they have to knead all sorts of muck. Certainly no one stood by to give the workers a drink every few minutes. So it doesn't take much imagination to conclude that the severe rigor imposed on the Hebrews resulted in many of them dying of dehydration, heat prostration, and heat stroke and the like. Look at verse 8. They have to go get their own straw. Evidently had been provided so it would maximize their efficiency, but now they have to get it. And verse 8 says, but the quota of bricks which they were making previously, you shall impose on them. You are not to reduce any of it because they are lazy. Therefore they cry out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Let the labor be heavier on the men and let them work at it so that they will pay no attention to these false words. So the taskmasters of the people and their foremen went out and they spoke to the people saying, thus says Pharaoh, I am not going to give you any straw. You go and get straw for yourselves wherever you can find it, but none of your labor will be reduced. So what did they do? Verse 12. So the people scattered through all the land of Egypt to gather what? Stubble. They couldn't get straw they couldn't find the straw 
So they gathered stubble. It's a word for chaff. Whatever junk they could find just so that they could keep up with the demand and the labor they were gathering together to throw into these bricks. And and there was no let up. Verse 13, the taskmasters pressed them saying, complete your work quota, your daily amount just as when you had straw. It pressed them, means it hurried them. Urged them to go faster. It was physical oppression. It was psychological oppression. Just think of the level of hatred from these oppressors toward the Israelites, how severe it was. It was actually murderous in intention. You say, how how do you know it was murderous? Well, look at verse 14. Moreover, the foremen of the sons of Israel whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them were beaten and were asked, why have you not completed your required amount either yesterday or today in making brick as previously? The word for beaten there is actually translated several times as slay or kill. They were beaten to the point of almost death. Now you don't beat someone like that in that way unless you have that kind of hatred in your heart for them. This is murderous intent. This is murderous kind of hatred. Verse 15, the foreman or these officials in Israel, the laymen of the sons of Israel came and they cried out to Pharaoh and they said, why do you deal with this, deal this way with your servants? We're your slaves. We're doing the work. We're not forming unions. We've been doing this normally and regularly. We're not asking for something else. We're not about to go on strike and ask for more health benefits. We're just doing the work. Why are you doing this to us? There's no straw given to your servants, verse 16. Yet they keep saying to us, make bricks and behold, your servants are being beaten to the point of death. And it's the fault of your own people. I think that's fascinating. The Israelites don't connect this Egyptian hatred to Moses or his request to let my people go. They blame Pharaoh's taskmasters. Pharaoh wouldn't do this to us. We don't think that Pharaoh, you know, really likes us, but he's not going to do this. This is not how he's acted with us. This must be these hateful oppressors. But Pharaoh makes sure that they know his thoughts and where those thoughts came from. Look at verse 17. They go to Pharaoh and he says to them, you are lazy, very lazy. In the Hebrew, the word lazy is repeated twice right next to each other to say, you're the laziest kind of people I have. Therefore you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. So go now and work, for you will be given no straw, yet you must deliver the quota of bricks. Now notice, you're lazy because you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. But who said, let us go sacrifice to the Lord? Well, the the Egyptian foreman didn't ask for that. Moses did. Moses did. Yahweh called him to that. So Pharaoh wants him to know, 
oh, this is not my taskmasters. This is me. And this has everything to do with your lazy, false desire to worship. And it dawned on the Israelite officials. We're in trouble. That's what it says in verse 19. The foreman of the sons of Israel saw that they were in trouble because they were told you must not reduce your daily amount of bricks. So this is not something we're going to make an appeal to the ultimate leader to change. This is settled. We, We can't live up to this. This will kill us all. That's a murderous kind of hatred, isn't it? Do you expect society to grow more enamored with Christianity? Has that been your expectation? I think subtly it is. Because every time it comes out that more and more of the opposition to God, the Word, the Bible, the more agitated, we get the angrier we get not not just god dependent we become we get like we have a right to this kind of anger this is oppression we do not deserve this is against our rights etc we've been a christian nation we expect a pluralistic society and a non-Christian society to become more enamored with Christianity? And you can argue, well, there's benefit. Christians work hard. We have a good work ethic. We, we honor the government. We honor our leaders. It's to the benefit of the government. I'm not going to argue that, but it's not the way they see it. Do you think the culture is just going to grow in its appreciation of Christian worship? Here, have more tax benefit. Do you think you expect that to come? Do you have some anticipation that our devotion to scripture and its definitions of man and woman and marriage and parenting and morality and sexuality and every other biblical mindset is somehow going to warm the hearts of those whose worldview is emphatically opposed to that of Christianity? I mean, we are repeatedly told in scripture 2 Timothy 3, Romans chapter 1. The culture actually is going to get more oppositional to the things of God. Now that's not to say that people cannot and they will not be converted to Christianity or somehow the gospel doesn't have power. Of course it does. People will come to faith in Christ. People are coming to faith in Christ Opposition and our patient and faithful response to Christ despite that opposition and even within that opposition may be a tool of the Spirit to open the eyes of the blind to the truthfulness of the word and we pray that it will. But God has said it's going to become more difficult. And what is God doing with that? He's exposing, isn't he? He's exposing. He's exposing the already existing hatred. Here, he's exposing the hatred that already exists in the Egyptians for the Israelites and their God. They already viewed them racially as someone beneath them. 
Now, this is just bringing it out, bringing it to light. And the increase in the intensity and the expression of that violent hatred simply continues to to increase the reservoir of the wrath of God towards unbelief. So when the plagues come out, and notice it's not just going to be one plague, but one after another after another that shows the intensity and depth of the opposition in their heart to God. Because at some point the plagues, they're all going to recognize, all the Egyptian will, Egyptians will recognize, these are from God. And they don't melt and repent. They shake their fist and hate him more. And God allows that, doesn't he? Why? Do you remember 2 Thessalonians 1 that we studied? Just listen to it. Jot it down, but listen to it. Paul says, we ourselves, in 2 Thessalonians 1.4, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of your persecutions and afflictions. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. What is Jesus when he comes with his mighty angels in flaming fire going to do? Deal out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified. Why such intensity? The depth of of the intensity of God's wrath matches the depth of the intensity of the sin against that eternal God. Why does the smallest sin receive an eternal condemnation? Because the smallest sin was committed against the most immense, eternal, holy God. But be careful with this. We are told the opposition will increase. We are told our rights will be eroded. We are told that affliction will come. And we are also told to be patient and kind and gracious. You can't allow hatred in your heart to grow towards those who oppose the truth. You cannot hate them. We are called to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us. We're told in Romans 12 that doing so heaps burning coals on their head. What does that mean? It means the more you are kind and you do not respond with evil to evil, it builds up the righteous wrath of God in the end. You trust his sovereign hand over these things. You say, well, do do we have no recourse? Must we just take it? Friends, make the appeals that you can make to your government. The, The Israelites did that. I don't know how they got an audience with Pharaoh, but they did. They got an audience and they made appeal. And Pharaoh said, no. Go to work. 
Stop complaining. Get over it. Make bricks. My glory's at stake. I mean, everything that would rub them raw in the wrong way. But we're told in 1 Peter 4, verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. And if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he's not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in, in this name. For it is time for the judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will it be? What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? So who should we be in the midst of any kind of opposition and murderous hatred? People who trust God. We trust God. We're not filled with anger and hatred. Trust. It's not quite the response of the Israelites when they face this harsh and unjust treatment. Which leads us to a fourth response that's exposed here found in verses 20 and 21. It's called fickle support. Now remember in chapter 4 they were all with Moses. They saw the miracles. They heard what he said. In fact we learned earlier in the book of Exodus they'd been praying for God to come. And now God has heard them and brought Moses and Aaron and supernatural power and gained an audience in front of Pharaoh. And the first time they're told no, verse 20, when they left Pharaoh's presence, they met Moses and Aaron and they were waiting for them. And they said to them, may Yahweh look upon you and judge you. For you have made us odious in Pharaoh's sight and in the sight of his servants to put a sword in their hand to kill us. You've made us odious. Our smell in the Egyptians' nostrils is pure stink. Our flavor to them is death. We're putrid to them. And you made it that way. They don't realize the Egyptians had nothing for them in the beginning anyway. But now you've made us actually smell so much they want to get rid of us. We're like trash. When I read that, we're odious to their smell. Reminds me of Paul's statement in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15. Remember this, this statement? For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. What are we a fragrance of? God and Christ. Now we hear that and we, we that smells like perfume. But he goes on, he says, to the one, that is an aroma from death to death. 
and to the other it is an aroma from life to life. And who's adequate for these things? You do understand the more Christ-like you live, the more you stink to those who are dying. That's what's happening here. What smells acceptable to God smells like death to those outside of God and Sometimes we have a hard time being content with that odor in the nose of the culture. The miracles that they saw from the hand of Moses, evidently they forgot about all those. The promises that God made long ago to Abraham that they knew and they knew were coming due because that's exactly what was told to them. We're not even thinking about those things. And so where they were first ready to blame Pharaoh's leaders, now they've turned on their own leaders, the leaders that God sent them. Because that's what happens in affliction. It makes us turn inward. It makes us self-protective more than immediately resilient. Self-protective in ways that may even make us turn on the very ones that God has sent to us to invest themselves in us and to point out the things that need to change in us so that we really have true satisfaction. It's fickle support. As soon as things get hard, we turn against others rather than turning to the Lord for help. And God exposes that. But there is one more and final response. In verses 22 to 23, it's selfish accusation. That's Moses. Then Moses returned to the Lord. And some people, they say, well, he should. He's going to God in prayer. That's what he should do. And it is commendable that Moses does not just hang up his staff and walk away. He does go back to Yahweh. He returned to the Lord. But what does he say? Oh, Lord, why have you brought harm to this people? Now, I just want you to know, that is not a question. You know when we ask questions that aren't questions? This is an accusation, not a question. It is a frustrated accusation. You have done harm to these people, not me. You did this. You're responsible for this disaster. You are responsible for these people turning against me because you didn't deliver. It's almost a veiled prosperity gospel, isn't it? This should be celebration time in the wilderness, headed to the promised land, all the promises of God fulfilled. I represented you, I spoke in your name, should have been immediately released. Prosperity. And God, you didn't give me what I wanted when I did what you told me to do. You harmed these people. And it's so selfish. Notice he goes on, why did you ever send me? It's almost as if he's saying, this should be someone else. I'm much better than this. I deserve something else. Why did you send me? Ever since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, I'm representing you. Why are you against me, God? I did this for you. And look at what you've allowed to happen to me. Does that sound biblically familiar to you? Like the man said 
the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave to me from the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. We keep shifting the blame until ultimately it's really it on God. You did this. And the coup de grace statement comes at the end. You have not delivered your people at all. Again, the Hebrew text is emphatic. It repeats the word deliverance. This deliverance is no deliverance. What you said you would do, God, you have not done. You're not a deliverer. I don't know why Moses is responding like this. Do you? I mean, after all, he was told He was told this would happen. In chapter 3, verse 18 says, they will will pay heed, the Israelites will pay heed to what you say, and you with the elders of Israel will come to the king of Egypt and you'll say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews has met with us, so now please let us go three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not permit you to go except under compulsion. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my miracles, which I shall do in the midst of it. And after that, he will let you go. In chapter four, verse 21, the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. So why didn't, Why didn't Moses quote his memorized Bible verses back to himself? Why didn't he do that? Why? It was plain. He knew this was going to happen. Affliction makes us forgetful, doesn't it? It makes us forgetful. It makes us look inwardly and self-protectively. And hardship has a tendency to turn us inward. And when we're turned inward, we're not. We're not remembering what God has said. We think about our image because we value it more than God's name and we think about our preservation because we see that ease is more important than God's plan. Yes, God's deliverance is sometimes delayed beyond our expectations and that delay can be personally costly. It can be painful to others, challenging to our appreciation of anything above and beyond the immediate difficulties. But what does God's delay actually do? It actually exposes our responses. It exposes our pride. And it shows us how much we just want things to be easy and go our way. It exposes unbelief in the midst of unbelievers. It puts it on display, which eventually will highlight the justice and righteousness of God. Have you ever noticed how more brilliant salvation and forgiveness are when you view it in the midst of difficulties God brings you through? Do you ever notice how difficulty makes you call out to God even more? Be more dependent so that God is more brilliantly put on display when he actually does deliver and satisfy. Maybe God in his delay is exposing our lack of resilience, our trust and belief in his word. Not because he's against us. He's not. 
He wants us to experience more of who he is and appreciate it and value it and experience the depths of it. It should be pretty obvious here. Moses is not a type of Christ here. He's not. He's a flawed leader. He's an up and down kind of man. On one day, off another. On one day, off another. Why? God didn't want Israel to see their savior in Moses either, did they? Did he? Moses is a tool for deliverance. He's not your deliverer. This is why Moses sometimes reminds us of Jesus, but not here. So that only Jesus looks like Jesus. Right? There's only one savior. There's only one. And he, he did it perfectly. He trusted the plan of God. He went through the hardships. He did not grumble with God's plan. He struggled with the pain of it indeed, but he trusted the hand of God to the very end because he knew what true deliverance would look like and mean. You don't look to the leaders and the flawed leaders among us. They just show us that we're all needing to keep our gaze upward on the perfect Christ, right? So sometimes God will delay his deliverance. We need to learn from that, don't we? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for our time to meditate on the word and perhaps even to see our own hearts and responses. The pride, the lack of dependence on you and the longing to depend on self, the craving and even the addiction of ease. We don't know what you have in store for us in the details in the days ahead. We do expect that there will be opposition. You might grant times of peace and I pray that that wouldn't be a time where we become spiritually lazy but perhaps we'd be diligent to build up for the times when it will be a struggle. But keep our eyes fixed on Christ. And we pray, our God, that you would turn the hearts of the unbeliever to you. You're a sufficient savior. You will forgive every willing heart that will turn and abandon self because Christ has accomplished everything necessary to make us acceptable to you. And I pray that you would remind us again, Christ is acceptable to you. Jesus alone. So that we don't look to each other as saviors. We look to you. May we be helpful to one another, but helpful so that we're all seeing that Christ is our one and only savior. And we pray for this in the name of that savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's stand.